Let me invite you to turn with me tonight to the book of Second Chronicles and to the 34th chapter. Second Chronicles chapter 34, and as we're turning there, let's pause and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we, um, we do come to your word tonight, and we confess that apart from your Holy Spirit, we can't perceive what it is that you'd really have us understand, um, not because the words on the page are unclear, but because our hearts uh, are foggy, and our minds are foggy, uh, and even as believers with new hearts and new minds, we need the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to understand what you're saying and understand how it applies in our lives. So grant that to us tonight. Grant that the Holy Spirit may come and open our minds and our hearts and open my lips uh, to speak um, with your power and with your clarity and with your truth. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you will know, we have recently begun on Sunday mornings a brief and selective look at the prophecy of Jeremiah. And if you were with us two Sundays ago, or if you studied Jeremiah at some other time in your life, you will perhaps also remember that Jeremiah lived in dark days. He lived in days of spiritual and moral decline in his culture. He lived in days when the people of Judah were plowing headlong stubborn as mules, right into the judgment of God. We don't know exactly when Jeremiah was born, but it was probably either during the reign of the wicked king Manasseh or perhaps during the reign of his equally wicked son Ammon. Manasseh was probably the worst king ever to sit on David's throne. You may remember that he introduced all sorts of idolatrous worship among the people of God, including erecting altars used to worship the stars right in the midst of the great temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Manasseh also delved into the occult, practicing witchcraft and using divination and dealing with mediums and spiritists. And he was a murderer too, we are told in the pages of the Bible, filling the city of Jerusalem with much innocent blood. And Manasseh even made some of his own sons pass through the fire presumably as a sacrifice to one of his pagan gods. Manasseh was a wicked, wicked king. But then, quite astonishingly, we're told in 2 Chronicles 33 that Manasseh repented. God brought discipline down on his head, and Manasseh, quote, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, chapter 33, verse 12. And he got rid of the idols, That he had set up, and he got rid of the altars that he had set up, and he threw them outside the city, and he began to worship the Lord, and he commanded his subjects to do the same. And so it seems that perhaps Manasseh, the wickedest king ever to reign upon David's throne, that perhaps Manasseh, even Manasseh, was converted to the Lord, was saved, which is a reminder, by the way, that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Even you, if you feel overburdened with your sin tonight, there's still opportunity to repent tonight, to humble yourself greatly before the Lord, to trust in the atoning work of Jesus, 
and to be saved before it's too late. If Manasseh was not beyond the reach of God's mercy, then neither are you where you sit tonight. And I encourage you to believe that if you've never before done so and to come to faith tonight in the Father of mercies and in his Son, Jesus Christ. But then let me say this about Manasseh's sin as well. While he repented of it and changed his ways and changed the situation in his country, and surely uh, we understand that he received God's mercy when he repented. On a personal level, he received God's mercy. Yet, we must also recognize that in terms of the national course of sin on which he had set his people, the damage of Manasseh's years of idolatry and wickedness was already in many ways done. Because while his subjects followed him in abandoning the idols, they still did not return to the Lord as completely as they should have. You can read that in chapter 33, verse 17. And when Manasseh died, his son Ammon picked right up where his father had left off prior to his repentance. Chapter 3 Verses 21 through 25, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed all the conspirators against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Manasseh repented and surely received mercy from the Lord personally, but his sins and the sins that he had led his people to commit had a long life even after his repentance, and that's a warning to us as well, of the danger of sin. But these were the days of Jeremiah's childhood. We've been studying Jeremiah. Here are the days of his childhood. Days of backsliding, days of idolatry, days of bloodshed in Jerusalem. And then Jeremiah also lived and preached long enough to see the reigns of the final four kings of Old Testament Judah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, all of whom continued the downward spiral that had been stirred up by Manasseh. Six horrific regimes Jeremiah lived under, six wicked kings. And given that the latter part of Jeremiah's preaching ministry was exercised for 22 and a half years during the reigns of those last four wicked kings, we can see why Jeremiah's message often came with tears. We can see why living amongst such kings and seeing their influence on their people, why Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. But in between all the madness of those six wicked kings, there was one other king, the son of Ammon, the grandson of Manasseh, who for a season stemmed the tide of idolatry. There was one good king in the final century before Judah's exile. And what I'd like like us to do over these next two Wednesday nights is just to take a brief look at this last good king over the people of Judah. Last at least until the great king, 
appear to them in a manger in Bethlehem. I'd like both tonight and next week to draw your attention to the good King Josiah. Jeremiah's preaching ministry began during the 13th year of Josiah's reign, during what was a time of great reformation in Judah. And let's read now about that reformation and about the king who led it here in 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 8. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images, he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali, in their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and beat the Asherim and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maseah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Now, as we begin our consideration of this good king, Josiah, who overturned so much of the evil in the land, as we begin our consideration of him this evening, I want to just make tonight two primary observations about him. And the first is simply this. Josiah was a good king. Josiah, I hope you saw it as we read, was a good king. Isn't that what we saw in verse 2? He did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. King David is so often held up as the measuring stick for the rest of the Old Testament kings, isn't he? David was a man after God's own heart, and though David was far from perfect, he was, by and large, a very good king. And here is Josiah put into that same category. He did right in the sight of the Lord. That would be good enough for it to be said of us, right? He did right in the sight of the Lord, but then this is added, and walked in the ways of his father David, the man after God's own heart, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That's a strong statement about how good of a king, how godly of a man this Josiah was. It's about as high a compliment as any Old Testament saint could be paid, and it's paid here to Josiah. And I say to you, he was a good king. And when we read on into verse 3, we discover why he was such a good king. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. 
Now that is a very important verse in understanding the reign of good King Josiah. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Josiah was not born serving the Lord. He did not come out of his mother's womb with a heart for God. In fact, he did not gain a heart for God until his 16th year. He was eight when he became king, and it was eight more years, verse 3, before he began to seek the Lord. And so I say to you, Josiah wasn't a good king because he was born that way. He wasn't born good, and neither are any of the Bible's great heroes, save for Jesus, just like you and I. And just like King David said of himself, Josiah was brought forth in iniquity. Josiah was born a sinner from the moment of conception in his mother's womb, in fact. He needed a savior. And that's true of us all, isn't it? We're all born with a sinful nature, and we remain in that sinful nature until that time where, by God's grace, we are born again. And that's what happened to Josiah here in verse 3. He was born again. He was converted. His eyes were opened so that in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. Without God's intervention, without God's giving Josiah a new heart, he might well have continued on in the same vein as his father Ammon. That was the stock he came from. But God did not leave Josiah in his natural state. He drew the boy king to himself. And Josiah responded. Josiah did what we must all do. Josiah began to seek the God of his father, David. And I say all of that to say that this is what must happen in us all. I'm about to hold Josiah up to you as a great example of godliness so that we might learn from him and imitate his zeal for the Lord, but you will never do any of the sorts of things that Josiah did in verses 3b and following if you do not first experience what Josiah experienced in verse 3a. You will never serve Christ until you are converted to Christ. You must be born again such that you will seek the Lord before you will ever be able adequately to serve the Lord. And so I have to ask you before I proceed if you've truly been converted to Christ. Have you? Has God taken out your old heart and replaced it with a new one? Adults, I'm asking you. Children, I'm asking you. Do you have a new heart? Have you, therefore, begun to seek the God of David, the God of Josiah, the God who gave us his son Jesus? Is he your God? This was the starting place for all the good that took place in Josiah's life. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And that will be the starting place for any good thing that comes out of your life as well. So I urge you tonight, before we go on, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you've never done so, humble yourself like Manasseh, seek the Lord like Josiah, trust in the last great king of Judah, Jesus Christ. For only then will you be able to follow in Josiah's footsteps and follow in Josiah's footsteps we must for he was a good king and we want to be good servants of the Lord in fact let's just take some time to notice in verses 3 through 8 how good a king he was some of the admirable aspects of his reign 
First of all, I just want you to think about how difficult it must have been for Josiah to smash all these idols and all these altars as he did in verse 3, beginning at the age of 20. Yes, Josiah was the king, and so his word was probably law in most cases. But he was still awfully young when he began his reforms, in the 12th year of his reign and the 20th year of his life. And then think about the current against which he was swimming. His grandfather Manasseh had reigned for 55 years, and for a good part of that time he had reigned exceedingly wickedly. And even though Manasseh had repented, Josiah's father Ammon had restored much of that previous wickedness right back to its place. And then when Josiah is eight years old, his father, his wicked father, is assassinated. But the idols and the wickedness remain for 12 more years until Josiah is 20. His father reigned for two years. The idols remained for 12 more years after that. And have you ever tried to reverse 14 years of sinful habits? It's hard enough if there are your own sinful habits. But what if the habits have settled into an entire culture? Have you ever tried to turn a ship that has been sailing 180 degrees in the wrong direction for nearly a decade and a half? It must have required significant courage on Josiah's part to stand against the sin habits of his own people and against the legacy of his own father, the king. But Josiah did it. Josiah stood against the current. He swam upstream against the current. He feared God more than he feared man. And I urge his example upon you. I urge you in whatever ways you know you must do so right now this week to stand for what is right to stand for what is truly Christian, even if it goes against years of family history, even if it flies in the face of years of bad habits, even if people hate you for it, you stand for the Lord, and the Lord will stand with you. And let me say that not only was Josiah's purge of the evil in Jerusalem courageous, but it was also thorough. Verses 4 and 5, they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that were high above them. He chopped down also the Asherim, the carved images and the molten images. He broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. Josiah, I tell you, was thorough. He dealt Not just with a few of the idolatrous practices, but with all sorts of them, we read. And he didn't just drape yellow tape around all the various idols and altars and hang a sign that said, keep out. He actually tore some of the altars down and chopped others of them up and ground the idols into powder. Manasseh, you remember his grandfather, had done a good thing. He had taken the idols down, he had taken the altars down, and what did we read? He threw them outside the city. That was a good thing. But apparently, his son Ammon, after his father's death, went on a recovery mission outside the city and brought them right back into town and set them right back up. And Josiah was going to make sure that that didn't happen again. 
His sons after him turned back to these false gods, to be sure, but Josiah at least hadn't left them any materials to work with. And then notice at the end of verse 4 how Josiah took the ground-up idol dust and threw it on the graves of the idol worshipers, and then he took the bones of the priests who'd sacrificed to the idols and burned them on top of their own altars, all of which I think had the effect of Josiah showing just how disgusted he was with the whole business. And so I say to you that Josiah was thorough in his dealing with sin. And I say to you that you must be the same. Are there sins in your life which need a thorough purging right now? Is there anything in your life that needs to be torn down or chopped up or ground into powder so that you never do it or see it again? There may be some physical items in your life which are constantly tempting you to sin which need to be flushed down the toilet or thrown in the garbage can, or put through the shredder, or sent down the disposal in your kitchen sink. There may be some relationships that simply need to end before the week is out. There may be some places that you go or some sites that you visit to which you must never return again beginning now. Josiah, I say, was thorough in his dealing with sin, and we must be the same. And then notice... Also, still under this heading of Josiah as a good king, not only was he courageous in overthrowing sin, not only is he thorough about it, but notice not only how Josiah attacked sin, but how he also positively promoted the things of God. Did you hear that in verse 8? In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. To repair the house of the Lord his God. Josiah's reformation plan not only included tearing things down and chopping things up and grounding them into powder, but Josiah's reformation also included the repair and the restoration of the house of the Lord. Josiah's reform was not simply out with the bad, but also back to the Lord. He didn't just get rid of idolatry. He repaired the house of God so as to promote true worship. And here's a lesson for us too. It's not enough tonight to be convicted of your sin and simply to set aside some sinful habits. Not nearly enough. Those habits must be done away, but they must be replaced by a return to the Lord. It wasn't enough for the Israelites to stop frequenting their shrines. They needed to return to God's temple. It wasn't enough for them merely to abandon their idols. They needed to return to the Lord. And Josiah went to work ensuring that the temple was repaired so that the people could do so. And you and I must do the same. So... Often when we hear a sermon like this one, we go home determined to stop doing certain things, stop looking at certain things, stop going to certain places, stop saying certain things, all of which is right, but that's not enough. We must also go home tonight and determine where idolatry is found in our lives to return to the Lord, to not only leave behind the broken cisterns, but to return to the fountain of living waters. And so... Don't just stop looking at those seedy websites, but begin looking more closely at the Word of God. Don't just stop talking about people behind their back, but begin talking to the Lord more fervently in prayer. 
Don't just stop going to those Saturday night trouble spots, but begin coming to the Sunday morning prayer meeting. I think you get my drift. Jeremiah was not content simply to uproot evil. He wanted rather to plant also the things of God. And you and I must do the same. And then notice one more aspect of Josiah's good reign as king. His reforms were courageous, they were thorough, they were positive and not just negative. And then also, did you notice there was a missionary element to them? Did you notice the difference between verses 4 and 5 and verses 6 and 7? All four of those verses have to do with Josiah smashing altars and idols. But while verses 4 and 5 describe him doing so, verse 5, in Judah and Jerusalem, verses 6 and 7 tell us that Josiah also did so, verse 6, in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali. And that is significant because while the territories in verse 6 Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, Naphtali, those territories, while they were once united to Judah and to Jerusalem as one great nation in the times of Joshua and the judges and kings Saul and David and Solomon, by the time of Josiah, the 12 tribes of Israel had long been torn asunder into two separate nations. Ten northern tribes who retained the name Israel and Two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which for a while at least walked more closely with the Lord. And Josiah was king only over the southern kingdom, over the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And so when verse 6 tells us that Josiah carried on his reforms in Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and Naphtali, what we are reading is that Josiah actually went out beyond his own borders to promote the things of God. And when we remember that the people of those ten northern tribes, Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and so on, when we remember that the people of those tribes have already, by this point in the Bible, been carried away into exile by the Assyrians and replaced with pagan settlers from the east who tried to worship both the Lord and their own idols, when we remember that it was pagans now living in Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, well, then Josiah's missionary endeavors seem all the more outstanding. Josiah went in among these pagan people and fervently promoted the claims of the one true God. And while the New Testament way of promoting the claims of the one true God is quite different from the way Josiah went about it, I think we can all appreciate his missionary zeal. Josiah was not content just to see the Lord's name restored to its rightful place in his own territory, but was zealous to extend God's fame even beyond his own borders. And again, he's an example to us. We must have this heart to pray for the gospel to go forth beyond our borders and to the nations, to support those who cross the borders to speak the name of Jesus to those nations, and some of us to go and be the ones speaking that name among the nations and among the peoples of this great globe. So I say to you tonight that in the courage of his reforms, swimming against the current of many years of idolatry, in the thoroughness of his reforms, smashing the idols into smithereens, 
in the positive nature of his reforms, not just tearing down sin, but building up the things of God and in his missionary zeal to extend these reforms beyond his own borders. In all these ways, Josiah was a good king and worthy of our admiration, worthy of our imitation. Oh, that we would be courageous for the things of God, that we would be thorough in our dealing with our sins, that we would be positive in building up the things of God and not just attacking sin, and that we would have a zeal to take the things of God to the ends of the earth and beyond our own borders. Josiah was a good king. But then let me say one other thing about Josiah a bit more briefly. Not only was he a good king, but also Josiah was a young king. And that's worth our noticing as well. Josiah was a young king. I'm sure you picked up on this as we read our way through verses 1 through 8. But just notice again some of his dates with me now, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Is there anyone eight years old tonight? Are you eight? Catherine's eight. So there you have it. Josiah was Catherine's age when he became king. Now, surely he had many good advisors at this point in his life, and I imagine that they did much more of the day-to-day running of the kingdom than did young Josiah. But still, imagine being eight years old and being king. Talk about missing out on your childhood, right? Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And then remember from verse 3 that it was in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, that he began to seek the God of his father David. So he was roughly 16 when he was converted. Still a very young man, a youth, as the author of Second Chronicles calls him here. And then... He was only about 20 in the second part of verse 3 when he began his reforms in Jerusalem and Judah, smashing the idols round about. 20 years old, and he's already standing against years of sinful tradition promoted by his own father. And then at the still youthful age of 26, in the 18th year of his reign, Josiah began the great work of repairing the temple. And then after that, the young king lived only... 13 more years, dying when he was just two years older than I am now. 39 years young, and yet this man had lived a beautifully fruitful life. And in this respect, again, I want to hold Josiah up as an example to you. And now, particularly to those of you who are still young, children, young people, 20-somethings, And for the rest of you who have an influence on people who are still young. Josiah is an example to us in his youth. Now, yes, it's remarkable that Josiah became king at age 8. I don't think we would normally expect that in our day or really in any day. It's unusual. But I'm not so sure that we should be all that amazed that he was converted when he was 16 or that he began to stand against sin when he was only 20, or that at 26 he was accomplishing great things in the house of God. Yes, Josiah was young, but I'm not sure that zeal for God, the zeal for God that Josiah had when he was young, should be considered unnatural to us or abnormal. In fact, 
I want to say to you, to the extent that we think, boy, a 20-year-old, a 26-year-old really serving the Lord, to the extent that we think that's abnormal, we're probably setting our sights way too low. I want to say to you that Josiah is an example of what many young people ought to be for the Lord, even in their youth. Now, young people, 20-somethings, children, none of you are going to have the influence that Josiah did, sitting as he did on the throne in Jerusalem. But you know, even at the age of 16 or 20 or 26, you can be just as courageous for Christ. You can be just as thorough in your obedience. You can be just as zealous for the spread of God's fame as was young King Josiah. Maybe our expectations are sometimes too low for young people. But why shouldn't a 16-year-old already be converted, baptized, and diligently seeking the Lord? I know God's sovereign over those matters, but from a human perspective, why shouldn't we expect that the young people in this room, growing up their whole lives under the sound of the gospel, why shouldn't we expect that many of them could become serious followers of Christ even from their teenage years? I heard Vody Bauckham preaching on these verses many years ago, and in noting how old Josiah was when he was converted, he lamented that today many 16-year-olds growing up in the church are being taught how to swallow goldfish in the youth group rather than standing for the Lord and seeking him like Josiah did. But Josiah's example shows us there is something more than what we sometimes expect of young people. He was 16 and he was seeking the Lord and we should expect our young people, as God calls them to himself, will be able to do just the same. And the same can be said of our 20-year-olds and our 26-year-olds and those in between. Yes, there is something to be said for making sure that young people are mature enough to handle various aspects of serving the Lord, but Let's not fall into the trap of thinking that our 20s are just a period for getting our feet wet a little bit and establishing our jobs and figuring out where and how we want to live so that in our middle years we can really serve the Lord. It's true that in God's timing it may be our middle years where we are most fruitful for the Lord, but we mustn't presume that and rest on our hindquarters until then. Don't do that, young people. Who's to say you'll actually live to your middle years? when you think you might really be able to do the Lord's work. Josiah died when he was 39. He was eight years old when he became king, verse 1, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Eight plus 31 equals 39. And what if you live only to be 39? What if you live only to be 29? What if you are past that age, but you have only one more year to live from tonight? Will you have served the Lord and left behind a legacy like Josiah with the few years that you did have? Or will you have just barely gotten started doing anything for God? When Toby and I were still in the younger set ourselves, so many of the great men of God about whom we read seemed to die right around the age of 30. Keith Green, David Brainerd, Robert McShane, Henry Martin, Jim Elliott. Not one of them lived past the age of 31. And yet all of them left their mark on generations of Christians who had come behind them. And they are all, therefore, for me, monuments to the fact that the days of youth are for serving the Lord, not for serving ourselves. Our candles may not burn very long, and theirs didn't, 
But if they burn brightly, we can shed abroad a great deal of the light of Christ. And this was Josiah. He burned brightly for the Lord from an early age. And he left a mark. And he begs the question, why can't we do the same? Why can't some of us tonight, you young people, you children sitting in the room tonight, be making a significant impact for God's kingdom at ages 16 or 20 or 26? Lord willing, he'll still be using you for his glory 50 years from now, but why not today? Why not from your youth? And what about the one greater than Josiah? What about the great and final king who came in the line of David? At 12, he was in the temple talking theology with the professors. At around the age of 30, he was fully prepared to enter upon the greatest ministry assignment that anyone ever took on. And at 33, he laid down his life for our sins. His candle, in terms of his earthly ministry, burned even more briefly than Josiah's but all the more brightly as well. And I simply say to you tonight that if Jesus lived and died for you like that in the days of his youth, then by God's grace you can live and perhaps die for him in the days of yours.